Hi guys, welcome to the Macros Bodybuilding and Powerlifting Podcast. I'm your host, Steve Hall. Thank you all for the recent reviews we've been getting. We've got a great number of new reviews and we would always like more uh, because more are welcomed. And like I said a few episodes ago, there will be a prize draw to the people who have reviewed the podcast. I just need to make that post available on Facebook and uh, that will all go live and I'll be picking anyone who has already reviewed the podcast and future reviewers. But without further ado, I'm here with Mike Isretel again for one of our great Q&As. And I know you guys have been long awaiting this, so we will delve straight into it. Um, and the first thing we're going to cover is something me and Mike discussed recently. And he was going to go into a load of depth on Facebook with me, but said that he'd want to talk about it on the podcast and be a great platform for him to get all of his thoughts out. So it was me talking about different ways to track progress and make progress in the gym. And one of those ways is kind of double progression in which you simply just keep doing um, the same number of sets within a rep range with a load. And once you get to the upper end of that rep range, you would increase the load. So maybe it's three sets of six to eight. Once you can do all three sets at eight, you then increase the load and go to all three sets at six. And whether or not this for Mike was a good progression scheme, um, and Mike is going to expand on why he might think this isn't necessarily always the best way to progress. So if Mike wants to go and have a bit of a run on that. Sounds great. Uh, thanks for having me on yet again, by the way. So, uh, you know, so we can criticize, I can uh, kind of not criticize, but kind of uh, peel apart the idea uh, of that progression itself. And then at a more grand scale, we can uh, pick apart the idea of um, why uh, some progressions that are very easy to track or some training that is trackable isn't necessarily optimal. So we can start with the first one. The most easy critique I can make of that method is that it doesn't increase weight from session to session to session. I mean, that's a problem because we know that loading is a factor in hypertrophy and progressive loading is one of the ways in which you get more muscular. It does increase volume, but not in a willful way. It's not an application of volume increase. It's a volume increase that, oh, well, if you are making good adaptations, your volume will go up. There is something to that, that you should progress as your adaptations are made and progress tells you it's the adaptations that you make for progress that allows you to overload more, but that's not the whole picture. The other part of the picture, especially for more advanced athletes, is that your progress is the fuel for adaptation. That it is not you get stronger and now you can lift more weight, so then you can lift more weight and you get even stronger. For more advanced people, it is lift more weight, lift more weight, lift more weight, and as a result, you get stronger. And Sometimes that strength doesn't even show up right away. It shows up a little later. So there's something about pushing yourself to accomplish those things versus just letting them happen. So for example, like a very easy analogy, let's say you're trying to train yourself to eat a whole lot of food. There's one way to do it, and it is to eat as much food as you like, and then when you get uncomfortable, stop eating. You keep doing that, and eventually your stomach will expand quite a bit because you're always eating to be really full. But how do you really train to eat a lot of food? You make yourself full on purpose and make yourself challenge amount of eating a little bit beyond what you could normally do. 
Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So you said, okay, today I have to eat 1.1 pounds of food per meal. Tomorrow or three days later, 1.2. You may not be comfortable with 1.2 yet. It's that overload because you're not uncomfortable, because you're not comfortable yet, that makes your stomach stretch even more. So we can't always let our own progress be an indicator of what's next. Sometimes we have to, in a sense, force that progress. And remember, the body is resistant to adaptation. So one thing that happens with advanced athletes is the following. You try to do that method with uh, until the reps get to the top of the range and then add weight. Start and uh, you hit 405 pounds in the squat for a set of, let's just keep one set and make it easy, mm-hmm. a set of 10. You say that it's 10 to 14 reps. And when you get to 14 reps, let's say that you up the weight. First day, 10. Next day uh, that you squat, some like a week later or something, or half a week, you get 12. Sweet. Week after that, you get 13. But that week is already week three. You've accumulated quite a bit of fatigue. Week after that, you get 11. <laughs> that sucks. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, yeah, you can. So, so now we have to deload, right? I mean, we are, we violate MRV is we're over our MRV mm-hmm. because, uh, you know, which we went from 13 to 11. Obviously, it's a reduction in performance. We did not recover. We deload, we look back on that mesocycle, and we ask what actual overloads were presented. Uh, we added a couple reps, but we didn't go up and wait at all. And is adding a couple of reps within that margin of variation for what you would be able to do anyway, uh, is that really stimulative gains? It is a little bit, but there could be, have been more stimulus. So uh, that kind of auto-regular, super autoregulatory way of training doesn't allow for those pushes out of the comfort zone as much. So that's the critique of that method per se. The bigger critique here, or the bigger lesson, I think, is that and one of the reasons you said is that it's really easy to track that sort of progress. Mm-hmm. When you start manipulating set numbers and weight on the bar and RIR, right, repetitions in reserve, because with that example exactly as I said it, it was like to failure every time. Yeah. Because, you know, if you do RIR for the reps, I mean, so, so let me get this straight. Your example is also to failure every time, right? Failure or the same number of reps in reserve. So like an RP8 or 9. No, that's already important. RP8 and 9 is really tough to judge. So there's some, so, you know, am I making progress or am I just bullshitting myself? You know, already that's a problem. But let's say you go to failure. I mean, first of all, so does failure give us a really objective measurement of the status of our bodies? Absolutely. But it also disrupts the very system it's measuring. It is akin to quantum mechanics, the observer effect, right? The observer effect in quantum mechanics is when you've got like a bunch of electrons bouncing around and you want to know where they are, what their uh, mass and velocity is. What do you do? You shoot photons at them, light, and then you say, aha, the photons bounce back and you go, that's where the electrons are. But the very fact that you shot a photon at it gave it more energy and shot it in another fucking direction. So all of a sudden, the system is no longer how you measured it and you're like, oh crap, well, so that's not good. It's like trying to find an easy non-quantum example. There's a bunch of like, you know, night crawlers and bugs in the grass in the dark mm-hmm. at night in your backyard. You shine a flashlight at that area and you're like, okay, I count this many bugs. By the time you got done counting them, some of them crawled away because they don't like the light. That's why they're yep. there. So uh, sometimes measuring training, especially measuring it too often. And I just had a video come out um, uh, a couple days ago on Juggernaut about uh, estimating or using too frequent max testing in your training. It's the same kind of idea that if you have a method of uh, training that is very easy to keep track of progress, you have to understand that of all of the things you could have done in training, 
you have delimited some of them because you're only interested in the ones that allow for easy progress tracking. Some of the best training occurs in here, but some of it also occurs in the stuff you threw away, right? It's like saying that I'm going to eat all the delicious foods, but only under 500 milligrams of salt. Well, you're not going to eat any hot dogs that taste any good with that little salt. You know what I mean? You're not going to eat any pizza that tastes really good. So all of a sudden, you're not eating foods that are good because you've delimited a whole section just for that caveat. So when people say, you know, I like this progression model because it's easy to track, for beginners and intermediates, especially kind of beginner to intermediate levels, two, three, maybe four years of training, that is a great way to train. Um, more advanced individuals need to kind of blast the effect. No, now, here's a, a good thing. They know their bodies well by this point, right? And, and advanced trainers don't need to measure all the time because they have predictable responses already. They need to blast it, deload, look around, see what happened, and then hit it again. We can't just rely on careful observation anymore during training because that careful observation interferes too much with our training. And when your training window is really narrowed, when the number of things that work are really small, you can't afford to spend all of your time measuring and none of your time getting better. Does that make sense? It's, it's almost like another really quick analogy, looking down at your feet to make sure your gait pattern is good while you're running. On the one hand, it's really going to make sure your gait pattern's good. On the other hand, your head's down, and you're not going to run as fast, and you're going to get a backache. So if it's for the first couple of steps, or if you're on a treadmill and you're working on your gait, you can look down. But in an actual race, you just have to do your best, run the race, maybe get some video after, see how the gait looked, and then correct it for the next race. There's just some observation and some tracking that interferes too much with what's going on at the time. Mm -hmm. And actually, related to that is – the potential that it's better for a novice to like slash intermediate going on intermediate is because their minimum effective dose for progress is much closer to their MRV, so their maximal um, recoverable volume. Whereas someone who's advanced, their MEV to MRV is much bigger. So that sort of programming sort of solution wouldn't towards their MRV or just keep just skirting the surface. I, I think that uh, I think you said that backwards, but I know what you meant. So, so for advanced, for beginner athletes, their minimum effective dose is here, and their MRV is all the way up here. So they have a really they get growth at all these ranges. So you can stick a measuring tool in there that interferes with some of this volume and still have tons to stack and no problem. When you're advanced, you might start your mesocycles here. Your MEV is here. Your MRV is here. Oh, yeah. You can't stick a whole lot of stuff in there or you're already over fatigue. So, for example, people say, you know, I like to do an AMRAP set at the beginning of my squat weights to determine, you know, what, what I'm going to squat that day. Um, for a person who weighs 65 kilos and has been training for a year and a half, an AMRAP set is a good stimulus and a good start to a good training session. And it definitely adds into the rest. For Chad Wesley Smith or uh, someone else comparably large and strong, um, that's the workout. <laughs> and that's more than the workout. There's no way he'd survive an AMRAP. So first of all, he has to get like 80 training partners to spot him. And second of all, there was no way he'd survive that week after week. So already, yes, that one set is above his MRV. Um, so it's one of those situations where, yeah, as you get more advanced, you got to apply the – in, you know, the training logic and measure afterwards. Here's another really easy analogy. Uh, if you have a car that you're a race car that you're testing 
and you want to see if all the systems work like you want it to before you actually race it, you can load up the car with a bunch of guy like computers and observation type of uh, things and little measuring devices. All of them add to the weight of the car. All of them are battery powered, so they sap engine uh, power. Uh, but they're useful because they're telling you things. When you actually get on the racetrack, all that shit needs to come out. Now, is that going to tell you a little less about your car than you'd want to know, other than the essential indicators? Totally. Mm-hmm. Are you going to analyze your car after what happens on the race? Totally. Can you have the best of both worlds? Well, no, man, shit weighs something, right? So if you want the car to be lighter and perform better on the track, you got to take the measurement stuff out. In an ideal world, would it be great to get those measurements and be able to have a car that is uh, of normal regulation weight? Yeah, sure, totally, but mm-hmm. that's impossible. So if we were going to go for that sort of double progression model not being the best way to progress as someone who's more advanced, what sort of progression model might you use? And you may already have... Um, this might be exactly what you've got in like the physique templates and the templates that you've got for Renaissance. Mm-hmm. I think that um, so are you asking the question of what works for intermediate to advanced or what works for very advanced? Uh, let's go intermediate to advanced. Yeah. So there, my, the progression models I use for hypertrophy are pretty straightforward. We start out with less sets and we do more sets as the weeks progress. We start out with less weight and we do a little bit more weight as the weeks progress. Now, our most of our volume increase comes from sets rather than weight because it's been shown that volume is a bigger stimulus of hypertrophy than intensity. So as long as we're in the range, more intensity is better, but it's not as good as much more volume. So some people have asked me, why don't you just add weight to the bar and let the volume bump up like that? Because the volume doesn't bump up fast enough. When you want a volume overload, you're going to do a lot more. Mm-hmm. Like how big is the homeostatic disruption for uh, 150 kilos for three by 10 X number of homeostatic disruption? How big is it with 305 kilos for three by 10? Like, like, I don't know, like whatever, three fifths of a percent, like not much, right? Or a third, you know, uh, what is that? Uh, Geez, like, yeah, so I'm not running the numbers in my head properly right now, but, you know, a a third, yeah, five five thirds or whatever, if I is five thirds of a percent, that's exactly what it is. So five thirds of a percent, man, you know, your body's adaptation to volume occurs much faster than that. And, and And that won't be overloading to volume systems as much anymore. And those are the ones that drive hypertrophy. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, so we add another set of that. Now, now we're rolling, right? Now it's a way more volume. That's a third volume increase from pre- previous workouts. So in addition to that, because we know the training to failure is excessively fatiguing, but also necessary to, to really cause the biggest adaptations, we have an RIR progression, repetitions in reserve, where we start with three or four reps from fail, and then as the weeks progress, we try to hit usually the same number of reps, or, or you can just do pure repetitions in reserve and um, let them guide you in, and at the end of the mesocycle, you're doing wonder from fail or actually training to failure, and uh, you have the maximum sets, most weight you've done, all the way to close to failure, and then you deload after that, you get that little overreach, and then you go back and restart. And I think one thing that I have to say about how the templates are designed and about how I advocate for training, training should be a progression. People are really... Um, sometimes taken aback by how easy the first week of training is in a properly periodized program. And they say, well, this is nothing. Well, of course it's nothing. You've got to survive another five weeks of this stuff, man. You can't hit the ground running with this kind of thing. It's short-sighted. 
getting bigger, getting stronger. It's about building, growing. So if you go bah, right at the beginning, you're just yeah. going to fizzle out. Well, that's what happens every time. So my best, and this is something I, that's been really brought home to me lately in my own training. And I always try to like wiggle out of this and it never works. If uh, I start nice and conservatively on the first week, really far from fail, really actually three or four reps from fail as opposed to like, one or two and lying to myself, there's three or four, um, actually start with lower set numbers, you know, not just somewhere between my MEV and MRV, but real close to my MEV. Um, I end up hitting big PRs at the end of those mesocycles. I grow visible muscle, all that great stuff. Mm-hmm. I start too close to the fire and I almost always fizzle out. And it's one of these things. Um, yeah, I definitely have had. I wish it was other ways, but it's not. I've had comparable experiences in which my program, basically the volume hasn't really changed week to week very much. It might have come up a little bit through increases in intensity. And by the end, my overall volume isn't that much higher than the first week. Whereas when I've been using a progression model that you guys have used, I've seen better results, first of all, and with my clients. But the volume at the final week is much greater, and that's going to be a much greater stimulus and overload for the body to actually adapt and get better. Absolutely. I don't know where people got it in their heads that you're supposed to blast it full out 100% of the time in training because that's wrong. And I don't know where people got it in their heads that training is always supposed to be just kind of in the middle. Uh, that's not overload. Math violates the principal mm-hmm. overload. So. My biggest advice, start your muscle cycles nice and easy, a little easier than you think they should start and end them a little harder than you think they should end and you'll have the best probable progress. Mm -hmm. I guess in it might, uh, this has just come to my head, but because a lot of programming is strength programming and that is more an intensity overload. So volume doesn't change. It may even, well, it comes down um, and that may be where it comes from in terms of kind of it not being a, a overload in volume for a lot of programming that we see. You know, the traditional, and I've had individuals say some interesting things to me on social media about this. The traditional periodization model of decreasing volume, increasing intensity, that applies to sports in which you're being tested at peak intensity. That's the sport. It is not bodybuilding. Okay. Uh, and people say, well, so this kind of violates classical periodization. I'm like, yeah, for shot putters, absolutely. <laughs> But you know, this by you know that's but that's that's the wrong sport. You know what I mean? So it's it's one of the situations where in bodybuilding the periodization is a little bit different. The structure is different. The main components are all there, but you don't drop volume as you go through the phases. You don't drop your biggest stimulator of uh, of you, you know what you want. So it's just very simple terms. Volume stimulates hypertrophy the most. Why the hell would it go down over the phases? Mm-hmm. And in in uh, for strength, intensity stimulates uh, strength adaptations the most. So why would you you know, of course you go up in strength and down in volume to compensate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, brilliant. I think if people want to learn more about that as well, me, uh, me, Jared, and Mike, Jared Feather, um, talked about that in quite some depth, that programming for kind of increases in volume. So definitely check that later episode. I'll link it below. I think we probably covered that enough there. Really enjoyable discussion. Um, I'm going to get to the Q&A that we've got backlogged from a while ago. So the first question was from Scott Thomas, who is a client of mine, actually, who's asked, essentially, if someone has been training correctly for two years with the scientific principles, 
and trying to gain muscle but has never really supported it with sufficient surplus or maybe not even ever getting into a surplus and just maintaining and always kind of being a maybe a bit fat phobic not wanting to gain weight do they have the ability for newbie gains when they do actually get into a surplus and can they see kind of more uh, muscle mass growth than they might expect with that training age that's a really challenging question I think he'll feel proud. He's challenged you. <laughs> yeah, he should. There is some concordance to nutritional and training that is beneficial. So the bad news is my first guess is that you've missed out on something. Now, missed out on rapid newbie gains is a different thing than missing out on eventual muscle size. So I think you still got a lot of gains coming your way and your muscles are super sensitive to nutrients and they are ready to grow. Is it going to be as fast as newbie gains? Maybe not. Will it be a little bit more consistent than newbie gains? Probably. So I think that um, nothing can really undo the fact that you screwed up for two years you kind of have to just start gaining and, and, and get going. Mm -hmm. um, I think that a lot of the novel adaptations, the novel sensitivity of muscle to nutrients, the novel uh, nature of muscle growth uh, has been washed away, unfortunately. Not washed away, it's just, it was around, jack shit happened. And now you're starting in a more trained state. Will you gain weight faster than individuals who have been gaining weight already? Yes, I think so. Mm -hmm. Will you gain muscle faster? I mean, yes, absolutely. Will you gain it as fast as pure noobs? Probably not. Because if we were looking to expand this analogy, we could say someone who's training for 20 years and artificially keeping their body weight down, when they start training and eating right and eating a ton of food, are they just going to blow up to the size they could have been over 20 years of hypercaloric training? No, <laughs> mm -hmm. that's 20 years missed. And that's 20 years of your muscles, most sensitive stuff. And now training after 20 years, you might not be able to train as hard because your bumps and bruises, injuries, and you're, you're older, your muscles and sensitive to growth just from the sheer training side. So yeah, I think there is some concordance of the two. And uh, uh, I think that two years is really not much. People go much longer doing stuff that doesn't work. So get to eating. And don't waste any time gaintaining anymore because you personally know. Now, that good thing is, is that person has a lot of wisdom that other, a lot of other people won't have. There's the wisdom of experience. And a lot of people who just take, you know, some, some people are just young when they start training and they eat and grow and they don't really uh, talk about anything. Yeah. Um, so they uh, will do stupid stuff like try to gaintain later. Uh, because they just don't know any better because they just accidentally did the right stuff. And it's really funny because I've actually um, uh, been around some people that, that really had a good coaching when they were younger and they had like, they just come, came up on the hardcore basics and good eating. Some of those people fall prey to fads because they've never done fads before. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I, I can't relate to that at all because I've just come from purely fads or my own imagination <laughs> of what training should look like. And then when I discovered scientific approaches, I was like, oh my God, I just get amazing gains and the fads are just so stupid that I was like, well, it's good that I experienced them. It's one of those things like um, 
people who are really, really good at squatting oftentimes can't teach squats because it just comes naturally to them. We're like, just squat down. You're like, no, it's not just squat down. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. It's a little more complicated. I used to be uh, super terrible at squatting and I had to figure out over years. So now I'm confident I can teach pretty much anyone how to squat oh, uh, nice. because I have to say, su- yeah, cause I had to suffer for that stuff. So same, same thing for that, you know, individual that asked the question, uh, you know, gain taining is not the way to go. Time to do things right and not look back. and You'll get really much bigger and much stronger if you do that. <laughs> yeah. I think that's really good. We advice. actually know that, Thank you. Yeah, we, we know that uh, muscle size doesn't enhance muscle strength from research, research. So I guess you won't get any stronger. <laughs> That's a joke. <laughs> oh, dear. Yahoo. Yeah. If people want to learn more about that particular comment, I'm going to put in the description box below a great episode on jog. Uh, I forget what the podcast is called, but it's by Juggernaut and it's on their YouTube channel. Jug, the Jug Life Podcast. Jug Life. Yeah, great podcast, great guys on there. And yeah, Mike discusses the the fallacy that is a bigger muscle isn't going to be stronger because it just doesn't make sense, does it? But Not it does. at any level. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, so actually, on, on a related topic to that, I think a lot of people, when they first get into training and they kind of, they do what Alan Aaron calls a folk, like a fat bulk. You just gain way too fast because people traditionally, when you first get into it, you just think of bulk and you just think gain, 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 gain. If someone's actually training in a scientific way, in a properly overloading way, and they're doing that approach, they're probably seeing actual better results. And I think a lot of people do see some of their best results still in that time. Even when I did my, my folk and I kind of regret having gained that much fat, I still actually gained like all the muscle I could have, which in the end probably was better than doing a gain-taining approach with that. Is that a question? No, just a statement of, I think some people try really hard and don't support it nutritionally and don't see the results they want and get frustrated when they could just actually just provide Um, the nutrition. Absolutely. I think unless, if you're a beginner, Unless you get so fat that you start multiplying fat cells, which is hard to do. Uh, people do it, but unless you just get like sloppy fat, you can burn the fat later, but you don't build the muscle. So if you take the middle of the road approach, that's the best approach. But if you're erring on the side of gain-taining, you could be gaining more muscle maybe. So it's okay to be a little bit pudgy after your first couple of years and be jacked or just have way more muscle versus – you know, starting weighing 60 kilos and then you weigh 65 in a couple of years and you're like, well, at least I know none of it's fat. Well, good job. And you're also small. Whereas an individual who bulked up much more could have weighed, could weigh 80 kilos by now. And you're like, yeah, but a bunch of that's fat. And then he cuts down and he's the same body fat as you and he weighs 70 and you weigh 65. And you're like, oh my God, I missed out on five kilos of muscle. That sucks. Like, mm-hmm. yeah. And, and you know, it's fun to see other people who are fatter than you who overate. But when those people get lean, you're like, damn it. I guess you could just get rid of all that fat in three months. And I'm going to take three years to gain another five kilos of muscle. You know what I mean? Yes. Um, And this is something that um, I used to not agree with this. uh, And something Shelby Starnes, uh, who's a very good bodybuilding coach, said once, and it rattled in my head for a long time. And then I ended up agreeing with him over, you know, at the time I was like, yeah, maybe. And then my own experience led me to this. Muscle is much harder to gain than fat is to lose. So when people really don't want to get fat, it puzzles me a little bit because, listen, if you get a little fat, you can lose the fat. 
But if you gain even a pound of extra muscle doing that, it's probably worth it. And people are really scared of muscle loss. And I remember, I remember Shelby uh, saying also that, you know, muscle loss is actually quite difficult. And I was like, whatever, he trains all these drug guys. And then I had the opportunity to be associated with quite a few drug-free individuals. Um, and uh, Jared Feather, for example. Jared would lose like a pound or two of muscle on a cut for a show to get shredded. And he gained it back in like a week and a half or something. And I was like, well, shit. I thought he was going to lose like 10 pounds of muscle or something based on the way I used to think. So when people say, don't get too fat or else you will never be able to lose, you'll just lose all the muscle you gained when you try to get lean, like, no, that's not going to happen. And especially if you do a phasic cut. So let's say somehow, and I don't recommend this, you got up to 20% fat. They're like, you don't understand what kind of diet that's going to take to lose all that fat. Um, Three months or four months of diet to get to 15%, maintenance for two months, and then another diet like that to get to 10%. And then you're lean. So now what? So six months later, you're good to go. And people are like, but you lost all your muscle. Nope, didn't lose a thing. All I lost was six months. So let's say I gained five more pounds of muscle doing that. Would you say that that extra six months I lost that I could have been gaining, would I have gained six months? Uh, in six months, would I have gained five pounds of muscle going the super slow and steady way? In many cases, yes. Mm -hmm. uh, for some individuals, in some cases, uh, I think it's uh, it's definitely, especially I think, and this is people say beginners, it's good for, for the advanced that might have to happen. In the advanced, I think if you gain a substantial amount of weight, you just don't gain any muscle. You have to really shock the system, really go hypercaloric to gain any muscle. And you gain a bunch of fat with it. Uh, you lose the fat and that muscle's still there. But... You know, uh, it's one of those things. It's a shitty trade-off. It sucks, mm -hmm. but you can't be lean all the time. And, if, and I think you and I have come to a consensus on the fact that if you lean all the time, you just never get that much bigger. And I think enough people have done that to where they've proven that, that that's the case. So. Yeah. No, I've definitely, anyone listening who's like, oh, but I really don't like gaining fat. You're talking to, well, you're listening to someone here who struggles with the idea of gaining fat. And I have... But every time I push past it, every time I embrace actually gaining, I see much better results. And remember, guys, you can still stay lean. You just you because you have phasic mini cutting periods in which you actually potentiate yourself for better progress later because you make you bring your body fat levels down. You get more kind of sensitive to nutrients again. So we're not saying you bulk forever and get really, really fat. It's kind of like you just you do actually push weight gain. Um, you never actually have to get really fat. Like you said, 20%, you'd never recommend someone getting up to that level. Absolutely. Cool. Uh, so let's get on to the next question. I think you are either going to love or hate this question. So it's asked by Vernon Fallon, who is another client of mine. Um, and he's just basically asked for your view on DNA testing for bodybuilding and training goals in general. What do you think of DNA testing? Can it tell us how we should eat, how we should train? Is it that advanced yet? Not yet, no. Um, it will be someday, and that'll be a great day. It'll be even better when we can alter our DNA. <laughs> um, but uh, testing DNA to match for whatever it is that um, you've got going on is five to ten years away. Now, if you know some people in some labs, they already have genes that correlate to insulin resistance pretty well, glucose handling and muscle versus fat pretty well. 
It's not a test you can just buy. <laughs> You'd have to be like, hey, cell biology friends, want to run that for <laughs> me? And they'll be like, okay, it's going to be $800. And you're like, ah, fine. Right. Um, for now, to the extent that I'm aware, uh, that such a thing is not offered for commercial use. And it's very developmental in its nature. There may be a couple of situations in which it is being used properly. The, the only reservation I have about that is the following. Um, the number of companies that claim to do that, but are really just lying to you is insanely high. Mm -hmm. So don't get scammed. <laughs> um, yeah. You know, people, cause they, they do blood tests and stuff like that for uh, nutrient sensitivities. Mm -hmm. Almost all of it's completely wacky. Um, it's going to be good. Uh, it'll be interesting to see what kind of testing going to be beneficial you know mm -hmm. it's almost it's almost strange to ask the question of what could a test like that tell you that you'd really want to know um i'm not sure i mean i, I can think of some nutrient sensitivity type of things uh, what kind of what do we get out of dna that we don't get out of hormonal testing i wonder mm. i guess some of those tests i'm not sure if some of them try and kind of say your percentage of slow twitch to fast twitch muscle fibers i'm not sure how they could even identify that from the tests i know there's some tests that try and tell you that by getting your dna they can tell you how you should train just to do that yeah now the slow to fast twitch that'd be great um unfortunately it's um i mean it's muscle specific so it would be only a very very general recommendation i don't know if they can infer that from dna quite yet um about tests and i'll say this forget about dna tests just testing blood and stuff in general some tests can be used many tests can be used instructively to alter your course of action you get a test there's a fork in the road you get a test it tells you which way to go that makes sense mm -hmm. tests don't really tell you anything except for ta-da and you still have to do the same shit for example People love getting their testosterone checked. Now, if they're trying to get hormone replacement therapy, sweet. And then you need to check because if it's low, it's worth it. If it's high, it's not worth it. But some people get their uh, testosterone level checked. They have no intention of going on hormone replacement therapy. Like, so what you checking for? So with, let's say it's low. Okay. Well, what do I need to do differently? Nothing. You just get worse results. But there's no way to, nope, there's no way to adjust your hormonal levels. Sorry, tribulus terrestris didn't work. <laughs> so, or if it's high testosterone levels, like, sweet. They're like, can I get away with more stuff? Like, yeah, if you want to be worse than you could have been, that's like, crap. And then guys taking drugs, testing initial levels is almost completely pointless because when you're going to take the drugs anyway, you yeah. just take them how you're supposed to take them. You're erasing all that. So sometimes people are obsessed with tests. Um. And that goes into the 1RM testing. People like testing their 1RM. They're like, so what does it say? It says you're weak. Keep training. What were you expecting it's going to say? You know what I mean? Like that you weren't weak, mm -hmm. that maybe you could ease up on the training. Unless you have a way for the test to inform, there's a feedback loop for your training or eating plan. I don't know what you get in the test. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. There's people obsessed with just yeah test one where at max testing regularly is oh well people should watch that video because i'm sure you did a very good job on telling people why that's a bad idea so let's go on to the next question if that's all right mm -hmm. um it's from jorg alagaran 
who has asked about calves. And I know you've recently come out with an article from Rene with Renaissance, so I'll put that in the links below, but just to see if there's anything you'd add to that. He's talking about stubborn calves. What would you do to bring them up? How would you structure your training in particular to bring up stubborn calves? Jeez. You know, you got to find out where your current training is on our volume spectrum. If it's below MEV, you got to do more. If it's above MRV, you got to do less. You also should experiment with different rep ranges to see which one gives you the biggest pump and the, big, the best soreness, because I do believe those are correlates to homeostatic disruption. If you are primarily more slow twitch on average, super heavy weights aren't going to really do much for your calves at all. And higher reps, more lactate type stuff is going to work. If you are more fast twitch, the burn stuff isn't going to work well. And the heavy stuff is see what you respond to best and then invest between your MEV and your MRV into it. you got to do some experimenting. There is no trick because if I said, here's this great program that just assumes things, right? So if I said, let's do 25 sets of caps a week, what if someone's already over their MRV? That'd be terrible. They get worse, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and then, you know, what if someone is, uh, you know, I'd say, okay, you're probably overdoing it back off. Well, what if someone's nowhere near their MRV? Well, we're just ripping them off. They might just fall below the MEV. They might fall, fall below their maintenance volume, and then the caps get smaller. And then they're like, oh, that sucks. So it's a situation that is really, you got to find out if you're doing the right volume, and you got to find out if you're doing the approximate correct rep range. Because mm -hmm. with calves, you know, some people are really, really fast twitch calves. Um, uh, high rep stuff just doesn't do anything. You talk to people who are really fast twitch in a particular muscle group, and they literally say training just makes them tired. Like, imagine how you feel after like a three mile run. You're not sore, you're just fatigued. Mm -hmm. And you're like, Ugh, and there's this emptiness feeling. That's not going to lead to hypertrophy. It certainly doesn't lead to the same things that lead to hypertrophy. Whereas on the other hand, some individuals who are most slow twitch, uh, or the people that are more are slow twitch dominant, then they do higher reps. It blows them through the roof and, and all the heavy work in the world didn't feel like a damn thing. Mm -hmm. um, sometimes, so for super slow twitch people, heavy work on a muscle just feels like they're hurting it. It's like, okay, that was really heavy. Do you have a pump? No. Are you sore? No. Did anything happen? No. But my tendons hurt. And you're like, okay, we'll backtrack. So it's one of those situations where I think we need to kind of personalize and, and, and uh, I can't believe I'm saying this on, on live TV, but uh, <laughs> you know, that whole uh, anger, denial, acceptance, et cetera. Like if you have stubborn calves and this is something that we have up in the, the Renaissance calves uh, article that you mentioned, um, calves are really genetically very um, contributed body part. There are different degrees of variability for different body parts. Um, some of them are high, some are low. Pecs, if you have small pecs to start out with, it doesn't matter. You can make them double the size, uh, almost everyone. Legs, your quads can get enormous, way bigger than they ever were. Your forearms, eh, somewhat bigger. Your calves, very low level of adaptation for some individuals. So if your calves aren't meant to be that much bigger, do your best and make them as big as you can. But if you're... Here's what I don't like to see. There is a dependable rate of growth, some number, small percent per year, in good training methods that someone's figured out for their calves. Mm 
But because their calves don't look like Jay Cutler's calves yet, they go off on these weird tangents and try these stupid little tricks that don't do anything and leave them with no growth. Because they're like, there has to be a way for me to have Jay Cutler's calves. Well, Jay, yeah. Cutler has, Jay Cutler had them, and like two other people in the world had calves that big, and nobody else does. You're never going to have those calves. There is no path to the place you're looking for. So just walk your own path and do the best with what you have. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. Um, it's kind of like trying to, if you're driving a, like to the other, to, to somewhere else, and you've got a path that you need to follow, but you're frustrated because it's slow, so you try and dish go all over the place and you end up taking more time to get there or you don't get anywhere you get lost hundred <laughs> percent trying to go through the woods when you got a nice freeway now the freeway might have some traffic in it but look you know you can't do anything about the traffic so if your own rate of adaptation is not super high even though you've done a real good job of trying it's okay to try different things just don't try stupid things that you know won't work um if people are like what if i train my calves every day with 100 reps i'm like good good luck ankle problems impending right or just you know like basically have like tibialis posterior <laughs> where you're just like uh just pain all the time when you walk i've had I've, I've seen people try that super high crazy calf routines and they're like can't squat i've seen people that can't squat for a couple wow. of weeks and they have to stop training calves altogether because they reach like a chronic state of inflammation what did you think was going to happen right um the mega shin splints basically so it, it's one of those things where within the universe of what is reasonable try everything and see if it works and be okay with if it works okay with stuff that's unreasonable you can try it if you want probably going to pay for it one way or another and the thing is i don't have genetics for really good calves my calves uh i just actually recently had lunch with um uh, my friends ryan and mike and they grew up with me and they were high school friends of mine and Ryan coined the nickname Chicken Legs for me. And that was my nickname, Chicken Legs, because I had such, I had to train only my upper body when I was in high school, and I had such skinny little legs and super tiny calves. And now my calves are like pretty decent size. They're like as big as my arms. So, I mean, that's great, but did they ever like have this radical period of growth? No, they just grew slowly over time, and I kept training them all the time. So, mm-hmm. calf training, I think a big thing is consistency. Guys will like, get frustrated about their calves, shit, like train the shit ton out of them. They'll grow a little and they'll quit for like months and won't train their calves. And then they'll get pissed and start training again. You don't train anything else like that. Train them all the time and they will mm. bigger, I promise. Brilliant. Yeah, I think that's consistency with calf training for a lot of people. And I think a lot of the time people put them to the end of their workouts. And if they really want them to grow, maybe prioritize them, put them a bit earlier. Um, and actually on a related note, on you talked about if you find a certain muscle group say the calves respond really well to higher reps how would you periodize that within your kind of progression scheme because obviously normally it's kind of starting out a lower rep higher rep and then higher rep with some metabolite work potentially what if you find this higher rep zone is really good but this low rep zone just doesn't do anything for you do you kind of rule out the lower rep stuff or do you just how would you program that? you just bias the average rep range so let's say that the average rep range in our training program is 10. sometimes we do sets of 15 sometimes we do sets of five usually we do 10. if you're uh let's say an example more slow twitch and you respond to higher reps your average might be 15. so sometimes you do 20 and your metabolite super high volume crazy phase you do two sets of 20 drops and stuff like that usually you do sets of 15 and then uh sometimes on the heavy stuff you do sets of 10 but you don't really ever go below 10 because then you're just not doing a whole lot of anything does that make sense so you just shift your zone one way or another and you still go through various rep ranges but you don't go as super heavy with some stuff as super light with some stuff depending mm-hmm. on it you know and the other way if you're more fast twitch dominant 
you might have a phase where your high reps could just be 12s, your usual could be eights, and your maintenance could be fours, like totally, if it's super fast, which muscle hamstrings often apply to that group. Um, you know, you're not, you're not going to do sets of 20 with good mornings. That's stupid. It's just back training at that point. Uh, so sometimes there, it goes the opposite way, but definitely phasic structure still applies. You just shift your average rep range. Yeah, that makes really good sense. So I think that, yeah, that will help a lot of people out in that. Um, right. Let's get to this next question. And this, this might actually be something that we don't really need to discuss because we have already kind of touched on it. And it's funny that it's just popped up and I should have remembered that it was from Mike Murray, basically asking about conservative one rep max testing. Um, is there any downfall to doing it frequently within training? And, and he brought up Jeremy Lenneke, who we were referring to before, and just more of your opinion on that. Do you think we need to go over that or should we just refer people over to your video? What did he, yeah, so let's say for sure, go see the video. And then what did he say about Jeremy Lenneke uh, particularly? He said, maybe even ask his opinion, Jeremy Lenneke, who, if you know, is big on doing singles, I believe twice a week for powerlifters since strength is specific. I know this kind of a kind of combination is a oh wait he just said he knows it's a combination of questions so that's what he said about James uh, Jeremy sorry what do I think of Jeremy Lennon we're live right uh, we are live uh, <laughs> so um, I think he's a real smart guy and I think he has a lot of insightful things to say. I think his challenging of the link between hypertrophy and higher volume training and strength is in the end uh, a pretty good thing because it allowed the rest of us who have different opinions from him to consolidate uh, really very well our reasons for why we recommend higher volumes and hypertrophy. Um, if that's all that comes of this, that'll be awesome. Um, I think a little bit of a downside is some of the things he's saying are so unlikely to be true or so contrary to the evidence that I'm not entirely sure. Um, I, I think he's one of these people that's really, really smart and has a lot of cool stuff to say, but I personally take everything he says with a huge grain of salt. And that doesn't mean I don't consider him valuable. I really do. Mm -hmm. But um, some of the stuff he says, it seems really, really like it's just not reflective of the reality of research or practice. For example, um, he has said to me, and this is public, uh, that he thinks that uh, people who are untrained in their first three months of training are um, just a very good, actually, very good platform to test if hypertrophy is related to strength. Be, uh, and I said, isn't that when you want to apply this to elite powerlifters and weightlifters, shouldn't they be the testing for that? And he said, no, they're actually really good. And I asked why, and he said, because... Uh, you grow most the most muscle um, of your development in in the first three months of training. So I had to re-ask him what he meant. I was like, are you saying what I think? And he was like, yes, I am saying that for normal adults involved in fitness, they give me ghost, most of their muscular gains in the first three months of training. You can imagine my confusion at that statement when I was just uh, a month ago reamed by uh, Lyle McDonald followers and through screenshots, Lyle himself, it's the idiocy of the fact that I rotate exercises once every month or two mm -hmm. because no growth occurs every one or two months until we adapt neurologically to something and then growth starts. 
I mean, who's right? Is it Jeremy or Lyle? I like to think I'm in the middle of that situation. I prefer myself to be more correct. But if you look at the actual studies, even on, on let's just, I mean, on untrained individuals, the first three months only see tons of hypertrophy towards the latter half of that. It, it is it that much is a rapid rate for sure. But is it, uh, do you really get half of your hypertrophy that you'll ever, so he said most of your hypertrophy, I assume most means that charitably 51%, right? Mm -hmm. 50.00001%. <laughs> <laughs> so um, you, you get most of your size gains the first, I mean, first three months of training. I must've weighed 110 fucking pounds and I weigh 240 and, you know, special sports supplements aside, I mean, I've, everyone I've told Jared, every drug-free you, I've, every drug-free individual ever, and it's the kind of gains I made. Uh, I mean, my God, the first three months, I don't even remember that anyone's like, I don't know how big I was. I was small. Who cares? <laughs> like the, the idea that you gain half your muscle in the first three months of training, it's, it's so uh, it's difficult to get my mind uh, around that, that uh, my thoughts on and his other contributions are also very highly skeptical. So do I think you should be one or, one or maxing? is the best way to gain strength. Uh, no, I absolutely don't think that. I think that doubles and triples have a real big role to play and occasional maxes too. But if you're going to train with maxes all the time, you're not, you're doing nothing new. You're doing something uh, that the Bulgarians tried to do and they uh, it could only sustain that kind of effort with a really fast athlete rotation when athletes broke and a shitload of drugs and it probably wasn't even the best way to go about that. Um, following the, uh, uh, the writings and the videos of Max Ada, uh, who's spoken ex ex extensively about the Bulgarian method, is trained in it for a while, uh, is a good idea to go to that. So this idea that you should just max out, it, it's, it's by no means new, and, and it's been thoroughly hashed out. <laughs> so um, mm -hmm. for the phasic approach to training seems to offer some very big benefits, and I would stick to that. Are occasional maxes a good idea? Yeah, they can be in a peaking phase or in a strength phase, but they have to be peppered intelligently. They should not constitute the majority of the training, plain and simple. Mm-hmm. And I think Jeremy Lenicky also, he did do the blood flow restriction and occlusion training, katsu style training. Um, he did the studies on that, didn't he? I didn't, I, I don't remember. I don't remember. I, I only became really aware of him when he started doing the uh, one rep maxing is the only way you should train type of advocacy. And then yep. lately of his hypertrophy doesn't actually occur or hypertrophy doesn't actually make you stronger in a, within the context of a training program. And, uh, mm -hmm. Okay. Um, yeah, I, th I think he did yeah. some work. With, with his blood flow restriction training work, from what I've seen, has been fairly good. If I'm getting the name right, I'm pretty sure I am. Um, listeners are probably thinking, yeah, of course it's him, or they obviously don't know either. Uh, anyway, so I think we've covered that nicely, and I'll definitely put that kind of the discussion you made on, your, on Juggernaut's training below. Um, if we get into Daniel Hacker's question, who's asked, in a week of overreaching, can it be appropriate to add additional rest days within the week um, to better present an overload in each training session to ensure that each training session is approached with super maximal effort? So adding rest days within your final week before deload to try and do better. Is that a good idea? Um, probably, yeah. You don't want to get too carried away with that because that means you're programming wrong to begin with. You should already be well overloaded. And you are going to be extending the length of your cycle 
so that the cycle now becomes longer. So the ratio of benefits to training time might actually shift back to not that great. So I would use it as a strategy very sparingly. When you planned to hit a good session, but you're so messed up from the last session, you need a day. Not, okay, in my overreaching week, I'm going to take a day between everything because I know I'm going to be messed up. There's something wrong with your training. Mm-hmm. That makes sense? Yeah. But if you're like, you had this unbelievable squat session on Monday and Thursday, you're supposed to have this deadlift session and you're just like, I can't move. I'm not going to be able to present an overload with this condition. Take a day and then hit it. But it, it don't, I don't think you should intentionally dilate that week because a concentration of stressors is also a form of overloading, especially mm-hmm. for hypertrophy, I think. So as long as you can get in the gym and do the work that it takes to overload, that's the minimum. That's the most stress. The most rest you should take is for that to be conducive. There's a big difference between going in and doing work versus having the best session of your entire life. So yeah, I mean, look, if you took half a week off, you shoot all kinds of PRs, but by then your fatigue is falling. How much fatigue do we want to fall during the overreaching week? Only enough so that we can provide an even bigger overload and even more fatigue. So uh, I'll put it this way. How do you know that you've spaced in enough days when the end of your overreaching week is the worst you've ever felt? If because you added days in there, you feel better than otherwise, you have violated their entire purpose of overreaching week. Mm-hmm. What, what really is the question is, let's say it's the Monday after your overreaching week. If you didn't put a day before your death day, your deadlift workout would go so poorly that it would be completely underloaded. It would really be a deload. And then by Monday, you'll actually feel okay. And you're like, man, I would have been so much more sore if I had the energy to do that deadlift workout justice. But if you put it back by day, you fuck yourself up. The next Monday, you're still messed up. And you're like, yes, I did what it takes to overreach. The extreme application of that in the other direction would be like you wait till, uh, you know, uh, Friday to do the deadlift workout. But by then, so much fatigue is dissipated from your squatting that on Monday, you're like sore from the deadlifts and stuff. But you're like, I just don't feel all around as crushed which is bad because you're supposed to be feeling like that because you're supposed to be overreached. Does that make sense? Yeah. So it's more of don't plan to have these extra rest days. Don't make that a method that you're going for plan to hit a normal week. But if, if you are feeling like you can't hit a session as hard as you should potentially put in an extra rest day, but don't make a habit of doing that and learn from. Yes, yes, yes. And you should be asking yourself the question, is this change going to make the whole week harder or easier? Mm-hmm. If it's going to make it harder, great, because that's the point. If you're just taking a rest day so you can have a good workout and just on the net balance, you know it's not going to be that challenging. Not a good idea. Cool. Awesome. Have we got time for another question? Yeah, sure. Brilliant. Uh, so Thomas Caro has asked, we know that soreness is one of the good proxies to see whether we've created overload. What about soreness for being a proxy of training frequency? Um, so, so maybe we shouldn't be training it quite yet because it hasn't adapted and kind of recovered yet. Should Is that a good way to gauge how often we should hit muscle groups? Yeah, I think so. You're training while sore, as a number of people have said, is a good idea. If it's a light slash recovery session, Totally. If it's an overloading session, what you're really saying is we are going to overload muscles while they are suffering from structural damage. First of all, it's been pretty well demonstrated that sore muscles simply do not provide as much force output as muscles that are healed. 
you may, for higher level athletes, not even be able to have a good workout. When my legs are sore, I don't overload. I can't overload. I'm not going to squat a PR or something close to it with sore legs. It's out of the question. So the other consideration is that of injury. If you're really sore and you hit it again, oh my God, like, I'm not going to do that. I don't care what, you know, unless there's really good data on it, I don't care what anyone says. I'm not going to the gym when I'm sore, violently sore, because I'm just going to get hurt. I've gotten hurt sore before doing dumb shit when I was younger. Now, should you wait for things to heal 100% completely? No. During an overreaching week, is it okay to still be a little sore from last week? Absolutely. A little sore, and then you could still perform. But if you consistently train, trying to overload while you have major doms, I don't think that's a good policy. Mm-hmm. And uh, as a matter of fact, you should probably not really have major doms too often. You should be only mildly sore only for a couple of days so that you can train more frequently. And because that is the amount of soreness that's going to shock your system enough so that you can still make adaptations. I think when you get super duper crazy sore, your body just goes, let's just fix everything and put it back to the way it was and get the hell out of there because holy shit, like we're just trying to survive. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think a lot of the reasons why people don't get results from certain programs and a lot of the reason why beginners, and this is actually demonstrated beginners suffer an incredible amount of muscle damage. It's been shown that probably beginners don't grow in the first couple of weeks because they're suffering so much muscle damage because almost all the studies start with three by 10 or four by 10. What a, that's a nuclear bomb. <laughs> Ideally, if, if I actually bring someone to the gym, the most boring session ever, I have them train all of the movements that I want them to learn in that first mesocycle with just the bar to get only technique. And then I might put like 10 pounds on each side and have them do like one difficult set. And they're like, what else? I'm like, that's it. And they're like, really? I can do more. I'm like, oh, you have no idea what's going on. I promise. Then they're like a little bit sore the day after. And then two days later, they're back. And I'm like, okay, great. I'll do another set like that. And then they won't really get very sore at all. Maybe just a twinge. And then on a Friday or Monday, Wednesday, Friday, on the Friday, I'll give them two sets. And then they'll get a little sore again. And we'll heal it by the time of the weekend. And then <laughs> we go like that. But I, I don't understand when people come in, they're like five by 10 squat. Like, are you out of your mind? That doesn't do anything. Yeah. There is no advantage to that at all. That's it. It's interesting, actually. James Krieger, who I had on the podcast uh, the other week, was talking about how uh, we talked about soreness and whether it was a good thing or not. And he said, like you've said, I think you've touched on basically when you are really sore and you're very damaged, the body isn't growing. It's actually repairing. So if you're consistently very sore, it's just repairing and not actually developing new muscular tissue. Is that right? I say I would say that on a consistent basis, absolutely. Now, I think that you can every now and again do a workout that sends you halfway to your grave because you get a cool overreaching effect from that. Um, Greg Knuckles has speculated that uh, you get more uh, translation of myonuclei into the active muscle cells from satellite cells if you do extreme muscle damage on occasion. But you can't sustain that kind of muscle damage on occasion. And the migration of nuclei is different than actually adding cross-sectional area of sarcomeres around them. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, most training should be meh soreness, average soreness. Uh, for In the muscle groups in which you do get sore, it should be like pretty sore. And that's how you know I think you're getting your best gains. Because if you're not sore at all, like what the hell are you doing in the gym anyway? It is unlikely that a volume between your MEV and your MRV that you're not getting sore to some extent. Mm-hmm. Um, and then for uh, every now and again, like on your overreaching week, 
after that, during that week, you could be mondo psycho sore. And then you deload your heal, and then you go back and, and you've made those super compensations. But I think for the most part, yeah, if you get way too sore all the time, you don't get into a car accident on purpose to try to grow muscle. Uh, hey, you get really homeostatically disrupted there, but you just heal. You don't make any adaptations. And actually, because you touched on, um, I know I just want to clarify it for the listeners. You said about in the muscles you do get sore in, because I think everyone listening will be able to relate to the fact that some muscles just don't get so sore. So something like, I know my biceps or my side delts, they're not muscles that typically get very sore. My hamstrings get really sore. Is there some muscles that you know typically just don't really get that sore, Mike? Totally. A lot of muscles just from their architecture, they're not exposed to damage a whole lot. They can't be stretched under load much, like the biceps and the side delts, all the delts really. Um, they, uh, they don't really get sore too often. Uh, and if you tried to get them sore, you would have to incur <laughs> such insane volume loads that they would just get fatigued and the fatigue would be overwhelming um, outside of the muscle damage. So I think that for some muscles, you should just... But the good news is because those muscles heal really fast... They can be trained really often, right? Uh, I'll almost go so far as to say this. If a muscle is not sore, train it is a pretty decent rule. So how often can you train biceps? Well, like every other day, man. Like there's not even any twinge in them. You're good to go. Sometimes every day. How often can you train your quads? Well, sure as hell not every day, right? And if you aim for average soreness and then you train them after they heal, of course you train the quads about twice a week, hamstrings twice a week, back twice a week triceps maybe three times a week, biceps five times a week, and, and that's how all these, I think, factors develop for most people. But there's a lot of variation. I know people who get really sore on their biceps, and they can only train their biceps twice a week. Uh, not coincidentally, most people usually have really big biceps. <laughs> so I think it's great when you can have a really high fatigue resistance, but that also probably means more slow twitch fibers. It means that your muscles are not ex as exposed architecturally to mechanical damage. Um, and that probably means you won't be growing as much. Uh, but you might as well just take all every opportunity you can to grow, and if you have a muscle that doesn't get really messed up, train <laughs> uh, you can if you can train your side delts or medial delts or something your biceps four times a week uh and they can recover make make great gains why train them twice i don't know mm -hmm. yeah fantastic i think a lot of people are starting to realize that yeah the smaller muscle groups the ones that heal their stress response adaption curves which is within your ebook um the principles of strength training the scientific principles of strength training really good and i love the the chapter on or the the section that talks about stress response adaption sra curves. Mm -hmm. yeah sra curves yeah br brilliant um but yeah we're going to a next question from shimmy hacker who is essentially ask cardio recommendations for a bodybuilder and powerlifter. How can cardio be integrated to either improve our weight training or not have a negative impact on it? How would you incorporate cardio for bodybuilders and powerlifters, Mike? For bodybuilders and powerlifters? That's two different sports. Very different cardio recommendations. Um, Bodybuilders should do cardio for two reasons. One is to maintain a muscular sensitivity and a leanness, which allows them to get bigger. For that, I would do several 30-minute sessions throughout the week as the average. Some people need more, some less. The uh, second purpose of doing bodybuilding cardio is to lose a lot of fat, and then you can do more of it. Um, for powerlifters, cardio should be done very sparingly and mostly for the purposes of uh general health uh, possibly a slight inc increase in recovery i would say that uh just three 20 minute sessions of relatively low intensity 
a week. Probably anything more than that is going to start to get really, really tiny negative effects. And then, of course, you do more and more and more of the negative effects of climb. Not doing cardio at all, I don't think hurts a power lifter that much unless they're really over fat. Mm-hmm. Almost all the power lifters that have ever said cardio helped me a ton were really over fat. <laughs> the cardio helped reduce their body fat and it helped them gain a little bit of um, work capacity in their lower backs, in their calves, and in their legs that allowed them to survive higher volume workouts better without cramping up. And, and, and for that, it's great. But mm-hmm. uh, I would say that uh, body composition should be independently dealt with outside of cardio and be like, well, maybe you should look at your food. Yeah. Right? Um, so that, those are just my very general recommendations. Um, just, to, just to really quickly go back to the, the last question you had. Oh, yeah. Um, so I just want uh, people to get uh, a little bit skeptical, maybe travel a similar road that I did. Um, if you're not convinced that different muscles need different frequencies of training, ask yourself this. We're claiming that the quads need the same amount of time to recover as the rear delts or vice versa. Does that make any sense? The reason I brought up the skepticism was twofold. One, I read the the bro bodybuilding programs just like everyone else did when I was younger. I did them. I remember there was like a shoulder day. So we did like, there was literally, because you know, it's the whole shoulder, three sets of rear delt flies per week, once a week. And leg day had like 20 total sets for quads. And I was just like, how the hell can you? I mean, I don't get sore at all. And my legs are sore for at least four or five days. I mean, at least something's happening, right? How can this be? What kind of workout would I have to have to get my rear delts sore for as long as my legs are? That's nuts. What kind of workout would have to decrease their performance for as long as quads are decreased after an overloading workout? That's insane. So just be skeptical about this stuff. And the second way I came to this reasoning is uh, when females came to me in, in search of training and they were given bro training and they were training like their legs and backs and stuff once a week. You look at them and they weigh like 55 kilos and you're like, you really think your back and Ronnie Coleman's back take the same one week to heal? And some of them are like, mm-hmm. like, so how many reps did you bent row 495 for today? And they're like, well, I bent row 55 for sets of 10. Like, <laughs> wow, you definitely need the whole week. Get out of here. Every other day you train your back, every other day you train your legs, every other day you train your chest, and every day you train your shoulders, biceps, triceps. That's it. And calves probably every day too. And they're like, oh, I really recover from that? Yes. And you'll grow way more. Uh, and, and it's just baffling to me that, that, yeah, the bro split has its uses, especially for larger, more advanced athletes. But, but for smaller folks, I mean, it's just, it's baffling. Mm-hmm. You mean to tell me that, that a, a, a 55 kilo female's side delt requires one week of recovery that there is no time during that week that we can hit it again and see more growth well by that extrapolation maybe ronnie coleman should only be training his legs every month and a half you know like you know what i mean it's just it's just crazy and it's weird to me that a lot of people just didn't think of this stuff um it wasn't really mentioned in the magazines was when i was coming up so Mm -hmm. i I just want people to, you know, and the science is still a little bit hazy on this, but just give that some skeptical thought if you're listening. Like, oh, really? Would that really be the case that everyone needed a week? Arbitrary, human-invented, you know, time schedule and everyone heals the same? That's nonsense, I think. I think 
if okay. I can, I can really relate to it. And although it's not completely the same, but when I first, when you first get into dieting, you really have the idea of clean foods and bad foods. And then you get into the science of, oh, there's, there's proteins, there's carbs, there's fats, there's calories, and there's a certain amount I need. And, oh, the actual food composition isn't the biggest and most important thing. But when you first get into it, that's what you think. And then it opens your eyes to all of these other aspects and you're more skeptical of different diets. And I think that's the same way with a lot of the training and science, scientific principles you come out with. It just opens people's eyes to kind of actually delve into programs and to be like, oh, that isn't necessarily the best program because it's not got this principle. This principle is a bit skew with. And Absolutely. yeah, I think people just see programs. They're like, oh, yeah, that's a good program uh, because it's got this person's name by it. So it's like it's a yes. good food or something. Agreed. Yeah, it's weird. You're just like, hey, what do you think of the this and that program? What do you think of the that and this program? Myself, uh, James Hoffman and Chad got literally tired of answering questions like that. So we wrote the book. Well, now you have the principles. And they're like, oh, wow, okay. Uh, geez, so I guess the following program rates well on this and not so well on that. Yes, now you have the tools to understand how programming works. And it's funny because uh, one of the critiques on the book was that there were no sample programs. I didn't want any sample programs in there because I didn't want to interfere with other people's creativity and the application of their principles to themselves. I would wrote some weird shit in there that works for me and my analysis of the principles based on my body and my clients, but maybe some other stuff would have worked for you. And um, I am not a very creative programmer. So, um, you know, maybe other people would have great ideas. And I think that when people understand the principles, that's all I can really give them because mm -hmm. there's something I'm very proud of my interpretation and dissemination of the principles. That's my life's work. Um, Am I proud of my particular quirks? Like, no, you should use this bench versus that <laughs> bench. Like, I don't fucking know. Like, yeah, fine. I'm a fine coach. I'm not that great of a coach. Uh, I don't know a ton of quirks. I don't have a ton of weird, like, oh, this is the way to program. I think if someone knows the principles, they can program as well as I can and mostly better. Mm -hmm. So Chad Wesley Smith, perfect example. He knows the principles now about as well as I do. I had uh, some help in teaching him some of the more formally named ones. And I think Chad's a way better coach than me because um, he's got that intuition and he's got that uh, experience at the very highest levels and he's worked with a lot of top people. And it, the way he lays out his structures, I would have never laid them out but it concords with the principles so you know you know i think that the no, principles are absolutely number one and after that if you want help with programming the most i can tell you is here's how i did it i think it's cool uh, i can't tell you like this is the way to do it because mm -hmm. principles don't stretch that far that's that's why i really liked your book in fact i had a sort of like whenever people ask me about different books and I always recommend yours because of the fact it just it lays it all out there and you can I love the fact you can use those principles and you can almost diagnose different programs and you can use them and that's how I did it after reading the book I kind of constructed my own and made my own programming and it it's really as a coach invaluable to have that that book as kind of something to go to and use and yeah definitely I I liked not having the templates in there or any sort of programming in there because it challenged me to then use the principles and create something and it made me a better coach for that. Perfect. That's exactly why I wrote the book. <laughs> Brilliant. Um, so should we close the podcast there? I realize we've been just over an hour now, so uh, we, we'll stop it there. And I just want to thank Mike again for coming on consistently and absolutely nailing these questions and helping people out. And uh, we will be doing another kind of, a post for some more questions because now we've basically got through them all 
Um, and I'm sure some people have thought up of some amazing questions to ask Mike and challenge him. And hopefully there will be some nice new challenging ones in there. So, yeah, thank you, everyone, for listening. Thank you, Mike, so much for coming on. And we'll talk to you soon. Always. Thank you so much for having me. And I'll be on hopefully next week. So uh, we'll get that rolling. Awesome. All right.